Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we're doing something a little bit different. If you were not aware, if you don't follow GAA on social media, then you may not have been aware of the live stream roundtable discussion that we did, but... On January 31st, we brought together some experts from different facets of the seafood industry to talk about bringing the wild and farmed sectors of the seafood industry together and kind of what are the first steps that we can and should be taking to start down the right path of kind of creating a unified voice for the industry. So what we're going to do today is we are going to play that conversation for you in case you missed it. But before we do that, Maddie, do you have some stats for us or so like sean said we had a good amount of experts from different parts of the seafood industry that participated in this roundtable discussion and i just wanted to name off the names so that you guys know whose voices you're listening to so of course first off we have the moderator which is the lovely sean o'laughlin who you guys definitely all know by now that's me by the way cue the cheers (laughs) (laughs) and And we also had from GAA, George Chamberlain, who's the president, and also James Wright, who's the editorial manager here at GAA. He's in charge of The Advocate, if you read that online. And then also we had Linda Cornish, who's the founder and president of the Seafood Nutrition Partnership, Brian Perkins, regional director of the Americas at Marine Stewardship Council, Drew Cherry, the editor-in-chief of Intrafish Media, and Melanie Siggs, who's the director of strategic engagements at the Global Seafood Assurances. That's right. We had an awesome conversation. A lot of cool ideas came up, a lot of good, interesting points that people brought up, and we had a lot of people join us, too. Yeah, the chat feature was very active throughout the whole thing. Yeah, we had almost 200 people tune in live. So if you missed it, this is your chance to hear the conversation. So we're going to go ahead and play that. And then we'll be back at the end. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much. Bye. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. Everybody, welcome to our very first live streamed roundtable discussion. Uh, I'm joined today by George Chamberlain, GAA president. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're also joined by James Wright, who is the editorial manager at GAA. He writes The Advocate. Hi, Jamie. Hi. Um, Drew Cherry is the editor-in-chief at Intrafish Media. Hey, folks. Melanie Siggs is director of strategic engagement at Global Seafood Assurances. Hi, everybody. Hi, Melanie. Uh, Linda Cornish, founder and president of Seafood Nutrition Partnership. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Brian Perkins, regional director of America's um, Marine Stewardship Council. Hey, guys. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Anyone who's tuning in live, thank you very much. Um, we are discussing... Uh, our topic for today is called Come Together, Uniting the World, Uniting the Wild and Farmed Seafood Sectors. So we're trying to have that first conversation to discuss what first steps we can start taking or what we need to do to figure out what those steps are to start bringing the wild and farmed se- sectors together to create a unifying voice for seafood as a whole. So um, I'm going to start off by passing it on to George. If you want to kind of, can you talk about 
how this divide kind of occurred and how we got to where we are now in this. And maybe there's a way that we can use this historical knowledge to start to make plans to re reverse this perception. Sure, sure, Sean. If, if I go back to the beginning of my career and my experience with this, it goes back to the 70s. And at that time, aquaculture was more of an experiment and fisheries was by far the mainstream. In, in some circles, aquaculture was almost a joke. It was a very expensive way of raising uh, various organisms and wild catch was by far cheaper. But then as you fast forward over time, we find that the fisheries landings began to plateau and aquaculture really started to take off almost exponentially. And even further, some fisheries got in trouble for overfishing uh, and aquaculture stepped in and over time it has actually become the mainstream and fisheries is becoming the niche. It's a remarkable transition. It's almost unimaginable that the oceans are fished to their maximum sustainable yield. Uh, the good news is that with the advent of more responsible fisheries management, especially from MSC and from various governments, uh, fisheries have become um, better managed. And we have reports from this, uh, Ray Hilburn and his colleagues just reported that fisheries landings are much more sustainable now than they were 10 or 20 years ago. So where what we've what's arisen is that aquaculture is sort of the new player on the block. But fisheries, in my opinion, is still the gold standard. That's still the perfect product. And and in, the, in these intervening years, conflicts has, have arisen in the marketplace about which is the superior product, uh, uh, especially in the case of Alaska with Alaskan fisheries and salmon uh, versus uh, the threat from farm-raised salmon that's available year-round. And the mixed messages that have occurred have really divided the consumers and led them to question both sources. So the opportunity now is to pull together and to talk about seafood as a whole. And uh, there's great messaging that can occur here and there's an opportunity to work together. Both are contributing a huge share of the world's seafood and the world is depending on both to continue that growth to supply uh, consumers in the future. So the, I think the discussion um, maybe could revolve around um, how can we provide equal assurances on both sides to make sure that all of the environmental, social, and food safety issues are being addressed for all kinds of seafood. So that's where I would break off and, and uh, offer that to the group for discussion. So primarily we're looking at um, this divide uh, from the consumer point of view, is this also a conversation that's happening within the industry that you guys see? Does anyone care to comment on that? Is it primarily with the consumer or is it also an issue within the industry? Yeah, Melanie? So um, the reason I've jumped in is because I think it's absolutely not with the consumer. And I think that um, we, 
we get very focused on those consumers who do have the education and the, the care to understand the difference between farmed and wild. And that's fine. You know, we're not trying to say that they're, they're the, absolutely the same thing. But I think fundamentally, by the time you reach product on shelf or on a menu, um, it's seafood. And, you know, where we we get a lot of confusion because we have, for example, in uh, big retailers, we have technical directors of seafood. We have seafood categories. You walk into the supermarket, it's about seafood. We look on a menu, it's about seafood. And then as we move away from there, that's when we start to split these things into two different camps. So whether that's at a, an assurance level, um, the challenges of uh, production, whether it's at a political and regulatory level, and that's a really complex area, that's where we start to separate these, these aspects. And I think maybe one of the things that we need to be thinking about is, is um, clearly there are different challenges, but that's true of lots of different things that sit within the same commodity in a food type. Um, but, but really, why do we want to separate and how can we better collaborate to make sure that we are creating enough seafood to meet the forecast demands for good nutritious food in the future? You know, that's our starting point. Um, and actually, let's not get hung up on, on consumers. Let's actually get hung up on our kind of processes and organization and um, the way we're perceiving this. I think that's where the change has to come. Yeah, Jamie, did you have something to say? Yeah, yeah. I've been um, covering seafood as a journalist for about 20 years now. And, you know, I've seen lots of, let's call it messaging, to use <laughs> George's term um, that's been, you know, negative. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. And it's unfortunate. Seafood has a lot going for it, obviously, in terms of health benefits and all the things that we say we want from our food. Um, and then our, our wallets often say something else. Um, somehow all of the great attributes that seafood has um, translates into very flat sales. As a Jew's colleague, John, wrote this week, um, U.S. consumption over the past, seafood consumption over the past 100 plus years has really not changed all that much. Um, and it remains well below other seafood markets. And I'm, I, I would like, I think that some of this infighting and uh, the negative marketing from within the category, it, it doesn't help. I agree. Um, Brian, coming from uh, MSC and from the from the fisheries, wild fisheries side of things. I'm curious what, what the perception is because, I mean, obviously, James, George, and myself, you know, we work primarily a lot with the aquaculture side, but um, I'd like to hear kind of what the perception of this argument or not argument discussion is uh, on the wild side as well. So <clears throat> it's an absolute fact that without aquaculture, we're not going to have enough food to feed the world as it continues to grow. We're not going to be able to provide the seafood that the world needs. Um, I think, I think um, I would disagree slightly with Melanie that I think part of the problem is the consumer. Um, they're not educated. They're confused. Um, and what happens when they get the negative message is, well, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to eat this fish or if I'm supposed to eat this fish. And so they just end up eating no fish. Okay. Um, and that's, and that I think is, is, is sort of the crux or one of the problems with it. Um, <clears throat> from the wild side, you know, 
I've never understood what is the the issue in terms of aquaculture. I know as a uh, as a non-governmental organization, there are some environmental um, issues with people, but we have both the Global Aquaculture Alliance and uh, Aquaculture Stewardship Council that's doing lots of good work um, to make sure that that product is farmed responsibly. Um, and, and from the wild side, I mean, yep, the Alaskans always have been um, uh, opposed to the salmon, but the reality is it's, it's the salmon availability year round that really has made it such a dynamic product. I mean, when you look at um, U.S. consumption, what are the top four? It's uh, shrimp and salmon. Where does most of that come from? It comes from aquaculture. So um, I don't think there's any, uh, any hard feelings between fishers and, and aquaculturists. Um, we're all producers at the end of the day. Some of us catch, some of us grow. Um, but that's just that's just a, a difference. Yeah, go ahead, Melanie. Just a quick question, if I may, um, as you were speaking there, I wondered if, I mean, clearly we, and I use that very general terms, have kind of perpetuated this um, challenge at the consumer level. And you sort of intimated that yourself, that unless we had told them, you know, that, that it was bad or they were making bad decisions, that wouldn't really happen, that everything else that they eat is farmed. But... Um, it just occurred to me, I wonder whether the there's a, perhaps a little bit of a romantic notion also with wild capture fisheries that's actually about the people who catch it and so on, which perhaps people haven't um, connected to so much on the aquaculture side. Yeah, I think that certainly is true. I mean, we have found um, as we've started to um, move more into consumer awareness programs, we found that the, one of the pieces that resonates very, very well with the consumer is that connection to the fisher. Um, and you know whether it's whether it's a TV program like Deadliest Catch or whatever it is, there is there tends to be some sort of some uh, romanticization of the of the fishers as the last hunter gatherers, which they are actually um, of our species. So th there's something about that, um, and wild does resonate with people um, for whatever reason. Um, but I think I think the one thing that you had said, Melanie, that is bang on is we in the industry need to figure out how to message so that we're messaging seafood and and the way it's produced is is a secondary attribute not the primary attribute i agree linda you had a point i mean you know at seafood nutrition partnership we work a lot with the health and nutrition influencers and so those are the registered dietitians and i would say that um you know from the health influencers and consumers, they're just curious about wild and farmed. It's not from a negative standpoint. And so when someone is asking, you know, is farmed okay to eat? We say, yes, it is. You know, just as with any food, we should understand how it's sourced, how it's um, processed and how it's brought to the table and the quality that you have that you're buying, the, you know, from your grocers. And so I think it, it seems that, there's been an underlying, you know, um, uh, history of negative press against farm fish, but that's going away. And I, I would just encourage the industry to just embrace the word and. It's both wild and farm, just as the title for this talk. And that, um, you know, we really you know, begin to just embrace, you know, I love farm. You know, I, everything we eat on our dinner plates is farmed. 
And um, it, it starts with each of us to bring that change. You know, I'll be in a restaurant and ask what kind of fish they have available. And the waiter will say, well, I'm so sorry. We only have farm today. And, you know, and that's an opportunity to say, I love farm. Everything else on your menu is farmed. So, and, and that's a point where an aha moment for where, where we can help people to understand that, oh, you're right. Everything else we have is farm. Why do I feel this way? And just begin that dialogue. Yeah. Drew, did you have something to add on to that? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, especially among uh, maybe this, this crew here, most of us who've been in the industry a long time, uh, that the idea of wild and farm can sort of be uh, sometimes a conceptual problem on our side, maybe. Um, I know, Brian, the MSC has done some research where people go in with the intention uh, and, and will say, oh, we care about sustainability. It's really important. You get to the fish counter and you go, oh, that looks good. That's cheaper. Um, people still buy on price. Um, you know, and I, I wonder if, uh, if consumers really care maybe as much as sometimes the industry thinks they do. And what I mean by that is where I see a lot of the failings, uh, particularly in the U.S. market, is actually some of the basics of convenience, of trying to overcome some of these problems of just making a choice for seafood where chicken and beef are so much more prevalent and so much easier to, to, uh, to use in their, in their dinners or to, to order off a menu. So while I think it, it does matter, um, the message uh, about wild and farmed, I think ultimately, and I think this is kind of what, what everyone's hitting on a bit, ultimately it needs to be about seafood and the message of the health message that I know Linda's been working really hard on. Um, but I also think it does come back to the companies themselves to produce products that consumers want. And if they do that, I don't know that they're going to care too much if it's wild or farm. Oh, Jamie, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just piggybacking on that. I think we make a lot of, I mean, we we're, we work in this space like nonstop, 24-7, and we we do tend to make assumptions that uh, people know as much as we do or have the full story or care as much as we do. I think Drew made a good point, though. I think seafood has a bigger challenge. It's really fitting into people's lifestyles more than it's fitting into their their ethos you know so it's um it's that's really the biggest challenge facing seafood is making it accessible and making products that people want and feeling they'll have confidence in making thanks it james yeah Nelly. so it occurs to me that that actually what we might struggle to identify a little bit is is where this change in the narrative if you like needs to happen um, we're kind of suggesting that at consumer level, uh, people respond uh, on price, and I agree with Drew with that, um, and, and also on what we tell them. So, you know, if we market and we pit these things against each other and this is good and this is bad, then that happens. Uh, but then actually when you move further back down the supply chain, it's more at kind of this level, you know, whether it's around assurance, around regulations, around... Um, you know, the competitiveness of getting product to market, maybe that's more where we are diverging and talking about different things. And so maybe actually identifying who's creating the kind of the, the versus situation, where does that need to change? And I'm not convinced that that's actually at a consumer level. 
Yeah, and I just, you know, I think that, um, I don't want to call them the enemy, but the real competition of the other proteins. And one of my favorite little graphics that's been circulating around, I think uh, GAA, you, you might have done it, um, but is a, uh, is a table of the, the food conversion ratios. Um, when you see these, uh, when you see um, the amount of water that's needed to, um, to bring a, a, a cow to market, to bring a, a chicken to market, those to me are very simple, visible things uh, to a consumer that, where they can say, wow, that, that is remarkable. I think when, when consumers can get confused is when you see a lot of labels slapped on things. Um, and ultimately, I don't think the competition between wild and farm, it's certainly nowhere near what it used to be. Um, I just think everybody's looking for a branding edge. And if the goal is to have somebody choose a uh, an MSC label product versus a uh, a BAP labeled product, um, that's just kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? I mean, I think that the real challenge is okay. How does seafood go forward and make some of the ethical cases, um, but do it in a very very simple way and really move towards, I think, what uh, the kind of work that, that Linda is doing and, and where I think things need to go, which is the health message, because you absolutely, uh, that resonates with people. Um, and I think that's something that, um, again, I don't know how groups uh, such as GAA and, and MSC um, can support that beyond some of the communication they're doing. But that to me is really what gets uh, that gets people's attention is uh, is is the health uh, the health message. George, did you have something? Yeah, I would I would say that when you circle back to the confusion and why that health message isn't getting through to the consumer, I think that they are getting lots of other mixed messages about the challenges. In the early days, it was. Um, mangroves or maybe now it's antibiotics or it's uh, social issues on fishing vessels, various exposés, lots of um, lots of baggage that's affecting aquaculture. And the, I believe the consensus in one annual meeting of GAA, goal meeting after another for almost 20 years has been, if we could just take the baggage off the table then seafood would sell itself. It has so many positives, you know, as Linda has been pointing out. But then how do we get that baggage off? And I think that's where the assurances come into play. And that's where the, the major buyers with their corporate social responsibility programs have made the pledge to go for fully sustainable seafood supply and then we can make sure that those issues don't happen. And then we're, we've laid the base to promote the positive aspects of aquaculture and fisheries. And, and George, I think it's, I think it, it seems that we all seem to be in, in agreement with um, kind of the stance from the industry side of things. But regardless of that, this conversation is still happening, which means that these biases still exist out either on the consumer level or the industry level or both. So um, I think when you talk about this baggage, George, I think what we need to do, in my opinion, is first identify the origin of that before we can start to try and reverse it because it's going to just continue. So what 
can we start doing as an industry? What are some steps that we can actually put into place to try and start countering this narrative and, you know, pushing forward this message that we all think needs to, to be pushed forward? Anyone have a, an opinion on that? I mean, I, I think a, a good place to start is, uh, well, of course, coming from us is to begin with a public health message. If, if uh, every American ate seafood twice a week, we need 26 pounds of seafood per person per year. And so, you know, hopefully everybody in the industry, whether it's a wild producer or, or farm, understands that the market share, you know, has a, a much larger potential if we aim ourselves to meeting the public health imperative to helping everybody you know, eat more seafood. And that, that is a goal, that twice a week a goal is, you know, global from the World Health Organization to the dietary guidelines. Um, even for moms, they are encouraged to eat seafood 8 to 12 ounces per week. And so, um, you know, we've been experimenting with a little seafoodies campaign, which uh, is on our website at seafoodnutrition.org. And so there's a lot of positive health messages that, that I would encourage all of us to begin to use in, in, in any of our work because, um, you know, you answer the question for the consumer, what's in it for me? It's not the certification love, you know, labels. It's what am I going to have for dinner that's actually going to help my kids have higher IQ points, do well in school, uh, you know, have better attention span. And me as a mom, wow, you know, my, my job is, uh, you know, just helping the family do better. And so start with that and also just own it. I, you know, they, I, I do see on social media, there are some wild companies that will say, don't eat farmed, you know, keep wild. And, and, and a lot of us will go and, and start messaging, like, what's wrong with farmed and really have that dialogue. And so I think, you know, when we do see those messages, really provide a counterpoint. Don't be afraid to talk of, you know, about the benefits of both wild and farmed. There's just not, there's enough room in this industry to talk about both instead of, you know, one versus the other. And we know this in this group, but um, it, it's a way to spread that message when we see those type of activities. Melanie? Yeah, I, controversial, a little bit pie in the sky maybe, but uh if you were walking into uh, a retailer or uh, looking at a menu, and I often think about my own behavior when I'm making decisions, when I'm faced with, with lots of choices and so on. Imagine if uh, actually when you looked at seafood, it simply had a label on it that says responsibly produced seafood or assured seafood or certified seafood or whatever that was. And actually if all of the assurance groups were working together uh, to kind of create that end point. And, and clearly there's a million challenges in that on, a, on lots of different levels. But from a, from a consumer perspective and from a uh, wild versus farmed or whatever, if you were starting from a different place, that is, that is probably what you would try and produce. Um, and while I have the floor, just one other um, thing on that, that uh, Drew mentioned about... Um, uh, the the footprint, if you like, of seafood, and you know, it, there's uh, the the water and the environmental and so forth. But there's also this, uh, you know, big piece around carbon and 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 climate right now, which we can um, we can get a lot of attention um, through that lens as well. So I think I think my ultimate point is that choosing different activities 
for the different places in which we need to just shift the dialogue, shift the narrative, whether it's policy, whether it's labeling, whether it's around SDGs, whether it's about climate, whether it's environment, nutrition, we need to sort of be collectively thinking about all those different places and how to move that bar forward. Yeah, Drew, you had something? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Melanie, you're aware, and uh, I think most of you probably are, of, of Seafish uh, to the UK Trade Association and their campaign for uh, two times a week. Um, and again, it, it's, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm belaboring the, the point I made earlier, but to me, the uh, the idea of responsibility and responsible responsible production that still is a bit more of a uh, production mentality. So it's a push rather than a pull from the retailer and the consumers, and trying to get a sense of what are they after. Um, they're after food that tastes good, number one, um, which in and of itself is an issue. Um, you know, uh, quality control. Uh, is is an issue now that that comes on to a lot of different people but when you're stepping into a retailer especially with all these commitments uh, that they've been making I think you should already feel pretty confident um, it's the retailers job and they put a lot of uh, pressure onto the industry to make sure that their their seafood is uh, traceable and sustainable that's been going a long time yeah work still to be done um, but again, I think with the consumers, when they step in the door, they may not care a whole lot about this. Um, again, I, like Linda said, what are they after? They're after something that's easy to cook, that's convenient. But also, I think Seafish has done a really good job, and the UK does a good job with their, um, Melanie, I think it's five a, a day, the veg. Yes, uh, uh, so we had a big government drive on five a day. Yeah. Yes, it's and, a and five it's a been day. enormously successful. Yeah, and everybody knows that. I mean, in the UK, and they they will label it on uh, on your food, on juices, on everything, and it'll say part of your five a day. Um, and I think that's something there where if that message of what the recommendations are for seafood consumption were brought into a uh, a simple, understandable format for consumers, where hey, this is part of your two times a week. Um, yeah, maybe it's a little bit like taking your, uh, you know, taking your medicine or whatever, but, um, Hey, you know, I think that's, that's a great positioning for seafood and that has been successful as, uh, people are aware of the health benefits. So, um, it may be something like that actually completely circumvents the whole idea of whether it's wild or farmed and actually, again, focuses on how much seafood should you be eating for your health? Melanie, you know, we, um, we have a hashtag seafood2xwk, so seafood twice a week, and uh, it's been um, popular, but but the uh, I get a lot of remarks from the industry, like, why are you using seafood twice a week? We should be using eat more seafood. And so there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a disconnect in understanding consumers. Like, we have to remember that 10 to 20% of Americans eat seafood twice a week. So we have 80 to 90% of Americans that are not accustomed to eating seafood in the U.S. And so it's it's uh, trying to introduce them to this wonderful, sustainable protein that they can include more often into their diets versus make sure to eat it every day. And so so I think we need to figure out a path you know, to making this a habit for the consumer versus trying to make sure that they eat it you know. At, all the time and turn the tide immediately, but it, it's really 
baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. That was what I was just going to say, Linda, is just I, I know the industry wants to have everyone eat more seafood, but you know, I think we all uh, we all know we all work for companies that if you don't set specific goals yes. uh, and specific um, to use a, a consultancy speak specific KPIs, yes. um, then then you don't really have a measurement on it. But something as simple as hey, look, industry, we just want to get the message of two times a week. Let's start there before we tell them to eat it yeah. three times a day. Yeah. Um, um, and that's been part of the success. Sorry, I jumped in. We're not supposed no to do that. But I was just going to say of the five a day thing, because I mean, it sounds so banal, but like even the fact that, you know, this is five, it's really easy to count. Um, it gives you a metric. You can just work it out during the day. When you say eat more, what does that even mean? Right? So it's, it's actually really difficult. So if we're talking about actually promoting more consumption of seafood, then I agree, actually um, getting out these sort of metric challenges that people can achieve as well is really important. But I think uh, part of what we're trying to do is work out then how do we um, help them choose what to eat. Yeah. James, I know you have a point, but Melanie, real quick, we had someone in the comments section just um, asked what five a day is. So if you can just explain that really quick, and then we'll get to James. Yeah, um, I can't remember which year it came out, but I'm going to say it was about 12 years ago, the UK government said that there was a report which said that um, to, to be healthy, you needed to eat five portions of fruit and veg every single day. And they, they really invested at a government level in getting the UK to do this. And um, as Drew says, you know, a lot of um, juices and so forth and, and pa packaged vegetables will tell you exactly how much of your five a day that is. Uh, and so it's really easy to do, basically. Okay, great. I hope that thank answers you. whoever's question. Yeah, no, thank you for that, James. Uh, well, yeah, I'm curious. I I think the, um, the the approach with using a number is effective. It's it's almost like a take your medicine approach. If you're one that takes pills every day, you you know you got to take two of these, one of those. Um, I'm really curious though as to why five a day works in the UK, but twice a week doesn't work here. Um, the see eat seafood twice a week. That's been a campaign. If I, I think it's pre uh, precedes my time <laughs> in seafood. I think it goes back to the seventies and I'm just curious why that hasn't worked. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to offer just a, a couple of quick thoughts on that. Um, fruit and veg, um, immediately you've got a choice of 50 to a hundred different things. Um, and they're very regularly processed into lots of different things like juices, um, like smoothies, you know, the, the industry itself can respond very quickly to that. Um, there's lots of very affordable things within fruit and veg and, um, and some retailers in the UK like Tesco, for example, actually give away free fruit for children um, as a constant. So you have, uh, it, it's much easier to achieve and you tend to eat fruit and veg pretty much with every meal you know, bananas with breakfast through to uh, supper, you know, your pasta or whatever. So I think it's more difficult with um, seafood and it is more expensive. And then some people just don't like fish. And we're just going to have to accept that, that some people don't like fish, um, even though they probably haven't tried it all. Uh, so it is more difficult, but it sh definitely shouldn't be impossible. But I am going to just before I go back on mute, remind ourselves that this is about increasing consumption, but increasing consumption of responsibly produced seafood too. Very and, important. Drew, you had something. Yeah, I'm going to push uh, push it back to to the retailers again. 
um, since there's no but no retailers here to argue. <laughs> um, but but one thing Next that time. you do see, uh, what you do see, Melanie in the UK is people will actually put on their fish counters. They will use this two times a week. They will put it on uh, freezer doors. You see this two times a week, all over the place in retail, and. You know, and, and I, I agree, Jamie, in, in 20 years, there's been all kinds of um, discussions about sort of a shared campaign, shared marketing campaign, you know, among seafood. <laughs> That's not going to happen. I mean, it, it's just, it just know the personalities in seafood, yeah. you know, you can't get three of them to agree on anything. But, you know, a message about health um, is important, but it needs to be visible. And Seafish has a logo. Uh, two times a week logo that you see everywhere. And I think consumers recognize it. Uh, retailers feel like, hey, this is great. It's I don't have to have these discussions about wild farmed responsible. Yeah, yeah. I can just stick this in there and it might sell more fish because ultimately a retailer just wants to sell more fish. Yes, at a corporate level and, and uh, you know, ideologically, um, they want traceable, sustainable fish, of course. Um, but ultimately, you know, they want somebody to buy that filet that's at the counter. But um, I have to just remind you also that the most popular takeaway meal in the UK is fish and chips, you know, and so we were kind of ready. We were ready for eat more fish and chips, you know, uh, which is a, a part of that message. But you're right. It works. Do you think this issue is um, is amplified here in the U.S. that you've noticed? Or do you do we think that this is, this truly is a global problem? And I, when I say this issue, I mean specifically the dialogue around farmed and wild. Um, is it definitely amplified in the U.S. from what any of you have seen? I would think so. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean, I would have, think so, too, personally. But. Yeah, I don't have a ton of, um, you know, metrics or evidence to back that up. But I can say that, you know, if we look at the compare the biggest th markets for seafood in the world and then look at the consumption rates. I mean, I think, the U.S. Think, is so yeah. far behind uh, Europe, even, and especially Japan and China. Sure. I, th I think that the U.K., um, that Europe generally, um, and up until midnight, I think I'm still allowed to call myself a European. Uh, so I think <laughs> Europe, hours. <laughs> just a few more, I'm going to take it and run with it. Um, I think that Europe generally, and I am generalizing, is actually quite conscious of the difference between wild and farmed. Interesting. Because it is a, a pretty separate conversation, but from straight consumption metrics to the the perception of the two sides and and how they. Uh, how but if you look at a country like Spain, for example, where you have a high consumption of seafood, um, actually the the purchasers' knowledge of that seafood is far greater than than in fact probably a lot of people, maybe with the exception of Linda, but you know. The really the buying and the cooking of that fish is probably a much higher knowledge level than uh, your average, may I say, North American or Northern European consumer. Yeah, true. Yeah, and I, I go back to what George said in, in kind of introducing the discussion, which is um, what was it that made a massive change? And, and this goes to you as well, Brian. Um, you know, the the rise of farm salmon was greeted with uh, a lot of opposition uh, in uh, in Alaska in particular, um, but that didn't stop it. And no 
no fish, I would argue. Um, happy to hear arguments from, from this crowd, but no other fish has had more negative press about it, in my view, than farm salmon. Pervasive negative press, meaning it, it continues. And not just on uh, social media, where I think things like tilapia have taken a bit of a harder hit, but in the mainstream press as well. I mean, continually, if you Google farm salmon, uh, probably one of your first results is going to be quite negative. But we're talking around. about a 5% year-on-year -year growth for farmed salmon in the U.S. And that at the National Fisheries Institute meeting last week, I guess it was, Kuntali, which is an analyst group out of Norway, said that if this continues at this pace, and despite the rise in salmon prices, it's continued, Americans continue to eat salmon, we're looking at a potentially a million metric ton market in the United States. And so the outlier um, is this fish that has the most negative uh, press about it. And again, I think that comes down to, like you said, George, having a product that consumers really, really want. And the questions kind of go away suddenly when you're offering a product that's easy, simple to prepare, and that you know is going to uh, be good for your health. James? Yeah, we've said a few times already that uh, consumers, buy, you know, they weigh their decision on price heavily, but they also buy with their eyes. And when you go to a, a seafood case, there's fewer products that look fresher and brighter colored than a farm salmon filet. That's just a fact, you know, and it's, it is, you know, it's, it's a fresh product available year round. And I think a lot of people really like salmon and, you know, they're drawn to it. Yeah. Melanie? So, um, Again, I'm drawing on my own experience a little bit here, but uh, if, if you're buying pre-packed stuff or, or you know, value-added product, that's slightly different. But we're talking there about fish counters. And I think actually the person behind the counter or actually in a restaurant, the person, you know, uh, the waiting or whatever is so important to that. So, you know, having someone behind a counter who can talk to you about the fish, the nutritional value, um, how it's produced, you know, tell the story of that fish that makes a lot of difference. And so where you have retailers and outlets that invest in that, um, or the restaurants that invest in that, I think that makes a massive difference. Yeah. Linda, with your, uh, initiatives at seafood nutrition partnership, I'm curious, um, what you have seen in regards to, um, successes, if you have any kind of measurable success that you've noticed since you started some of these initiatives, uh, with, kind of communicating the nutrition aspect of it as opposed to just trying to sell sustainability or, um, you know, sell based on price. Yeah. I, I think, uh, for the consumer, I mean, it's, it's number one is taste and then price. And then, you know, they care about sustainability, but it's, uh, probably number five to seven on their list. Um, you know, I think, I think, uh, Drew may have brought this up, Consumers, when they walk into a major retailer, assume that they've done their job of pre presenting the best quality product for them. And we also reinforce that by saying that, you know, from a Conservation Alliance uh, report that 80 to 90% of major retailers and food service in the U.S. have a sustainable seafood policy in place and that, that you should feel very good about the seafood that we're buying. The sourcing, the certification, insurance, it needs to happen. That is job one that the quality of products that is made available for consumers has to be high quality so that, that that question should not even be one that consumers make. They should just know that that's a high quality product when they get to the retailer. 
And so what's working for us is give them the best taste of fish that they can possibly have. You could possibly have only one chance with a consumer to make sure that they have that best bite, best delicious way of knowing how to cook it that's simple to take home, that they'll want to repeat back at home. You know, a lot of, um, you know, we forget that much of the U.S. is landlocked. And so people did not grow up with a seafood culture and, and also, we don't have a food system here that promotes healthy eating. I love how the UK has a, you know, embraced a five-a-day. We had a five-a-day. We have a five-a-day here, too. It didn't work. And so now it's also now uh, the tagline is more is better for fruits and vegetables. So they, so they changed the tagline is just try. Try it more is better. And so that's the U.S. We're, we, we um I think just uh, need to just remember that the culture for seafood is, um, you know, still that, that memory of the bad fish stick. And so we have to do a really great job of making sure the consumers have that great taste of seafood so that they can actually begin to give it a try and, and go on that journey. So we have a different I think, story here in the U.S. Than, than the U.K. with the seafood culture. Yeah. So, um, Drew, I know you have a point, but I just want to note right now we – we're getting a little short on time, um, and there are a couple topics that I want to uh, address. But um, if you want to have, say one more thought before we kind of shift gears just a little bit, uh, go ahead. Sure, you bet. It was actually kind of a question uh, to uh, either Brian or George, and that is, um, you know, what responsibility do uh, do certification groups have to grow consumption? Is that something that uh, groups need to take on more, perhaps, like GAA and like the MSC. Brian? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think we do have a to have uh, and are trying to to take on more of that kind of messaging to the consumer, pointing out the the health benefits. <clears throat> MSC and um, seafood nutrition partners continually are looking for ways to reinforce each other's message. I mean, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the more that's, that's another value add that we get to bring it along with assuring that it's been sustainably caught. It's also helping the consumer understand that it's good and okay to eat seafood. So have you seen anything yeah. on the wild side that's, that's being done uh, that may not be happening uh, on the farm side that has had some successes that maybe should be adopted on that side so we all can, can do it together? Yeah, I can't think of anything. <clears throat> I can't think of anything specific. Um, you know, we've thrown a lot of numbers around, and and um, and pretty much um, all of our research reinforces what Linda was saying in terms of taste, price, convenience being the top three, sustainability being in there, but being down around five, six, seven. Um, we were pleased that it was in the top ten attributes that, that consumers look at. For to, to be quite honest. Um, but it doesn't, I can't think of anything on the wild side that's been particularly, I mean, other than, uh, I'm blanking now, the salmon that, the first salmon that comes out in Alaska, they've certainly done a brilliant job. Uh, Copper, oh, River. Copper River. Copper River. Copper River. Yeah. I mean, they've certainly yeah. done a brilliant job of making that um, sort of the Beaujolais of, of fish in some regards. I don't know whether farm people could do that or not. George, you had a note? Yeah, I think on the on the GAA side, we've come to the realization that we can't really 
directly impact consumers very well, given the budget that it takes to do an effective marketing campaign at a national level in the U.S. Uh, maybe that's on the order of 20 or $50 million a year. We did have a really amazing talk at the Guayaquil Gold Meeting a couple of years ago where a gentleman spoke about avocado marketing and how avocados uh, used to have a very poor reputation and they um, formed a USDA marketing board and greatly improved quality and put money into marketing and solid science and they've doubled or tripled avocado consumption in the US while at the same time increasing prices. I think we can all realize in our own shopping how avocados are now everywhere and they're now at seven pounds per capita and the avocado guys want to go to 29 to overtake the banana. banana. So this just energized the shrimp farming world and resulted in the formation of a shrimp marketing initiative and that's still ongoing and I hope that eventually they do form a USDA marketing board as well. Maybe that can be one of the first steps toward a seafood marketing initiative. But in general, I think we find that our best route toward marketing is to help the buyers. The buyers have uh, very established marketing initiatives. And if we can piggyback on them with information about the sustainability and quality and desirability of seafood, then we can get our message out on the backs of an existing retailer campaign. In, our, in the last few minutes, I know this could probably be a, a full discussion in itself, but um, you know we have some information, we have some metrics, uh, specifically talk about the EAT report and uh, how can something like the EAT report and the UN sustainability goals uh, help to kind of clarify things for us of what's going on in the industry and help us kind of develop a plan to move forward. I know, George, you're very uh, versed in the EAT report, so maybe you can- Well, just for those who aren't familiar with it, this is um, a very <laughs> prestigious group of e experts studied what diets are good for the planet and what diets are good for people and how are we going to meet the nutritional needs of, the, of humanity uh, going forward because the general realization is that we need almost double the food supply by 2050 and about 50% more protein by 2050. And we know that some proteins are very resource intensive. Uh, the planet really can't afford to increase much more. And certain dietary habits are bad for people causing diabetes, obesity, heart problems. And this Eat Lancet report basically concluded that we need to cut back on a lot of the terrestrial proteins and uh, starch vegetables. And this will sound self-serving, but we need to increase seafood and fruits and vegetables. So this is a tremendous, powerful, um, body of information that we can use to help build the the arguments for increasing seafood consumption not only is it good for people it's good for the planet and and this is actually critical for the future nutrition of humanity so it's a it's a tremendous obligation that we have to help increase supply and it's not going to be just farmed or just wild it's going to be both together yeah melanie 
Yeah, um, it's one of my favourite subjects. Uh, the the big stuff like Eat Lancet and the SDGs and Eat Lancet was the, um, I think it was led by the Stockholm Resilience Centre originally. Uh, but but one of the great things about it, I mean, it looked at planetary boundaries and planetary systems and says, you know, to George's point, what's the optimum diet that we can produce from what we know right now? Because clearly there will be things we don't know. And actually fish, seafood, and it, and at that point it, it's not uh, separated into farm and wild, um, was the only emphasized animal protein in the outcome uh, report. And, um, and then there's a lot of groups now at a kind of uh, global level that are working with this report and others like um, FAO's statistics and um, uh, the SDGs and so forth. And they're trying to work at a very kind of government and global uh, level to push that. So I think it's worth mentioning within the context of, of this conversation because it means that we potentially do have the support at that level to act the, the way that we need to. And if we can demonstrate that actually support from governments and regulations and so on um, is going to enable them to uh, provide food for their, their country's future populations, to report out on SDGs, um, that you know th these are, they want solutions as well. So uh, that's gonna be a benefit to them. Um, as, a slight aside on that, it's incredible to notice that um, when the SDGs were created, 14, we all know, is uh, life below water and does look at the business of the ocean and fish, but quite in a um, small island developing state context, uh, it's quite specific, but we, we've interpreted a lot of that into a bigger picture. But just for the record, aquaculture uh, and farm fish is not mentioned within the context of the SDGs anywhere. And we have chosen to be able to demonstrate how it does respond to things like zero hunger and good health and decent work and all sorts of, of, of uh, different contexts. Um, but it's, it's perhaps just demonstrating how we didn't speak up for ourselves in the, when those were being created and we need to do that better. And, and if we get that into the realm of seafood instead of separating them, um, as Eat Lancet have done, uh, broadly speaking, then we can do that better. Great. James, did you have a point? Yeah, there are, there are 17 uh, sustainable development goals, and I was looking at them the other day, and I was, I think you could argue that a thriving and environmentally aware seafood industry factors into at least 10 of them. I mean, maybe a, a, a stretch on a few fronts, but... Without um, a doubt. Yeah, it's really limitless in the ways in which... Uh, we can contribute to a better future. We just have to allow it. Absolutely. So I want to wrap up in the last few minutes, just kind of seeing if we can get a gauge on what's already being done to try and, and push this issue forward and, uh, or push this issue out. Um, I know for myself, I've seen a commercial recently from Whole Foods where they were advertising their seafood and it was just the freshest farmed and wild seafood. They incorporated both and it just, it, I don't know if you've all seen that commercial on TV, but, um, I was really happy to see that. So I know that there's there are some things that are being done to try and uh, push this initiative. Uh, and if anyone else wants to highlight some of those and kind of where we can take those moving forward, that'd be great. Anyone? Um, I'll, I'll start and say that, you know, we have our little CCDs campaign happening right now and it's um, being piloted so far in four cities. And so if you want to know more, it's little, littlecfoodies.com. 
and uh, it's helping moms know how to feed their kids um, good seafood. And we promote both wild and farmed, uh, both U.S. And, and imported. So it covers all seafood that's sustainable. And so that's uh, one way that, that we're uh, contributing to this effort. Melanie? So I'm hesitating because I don't want this to sound like a pitch for Global Seafood Assurance, but I'm going to have to do a little bit on it because, you know, this is the vision that we had in creating Global Seafood Assurance is thinking about how do we actually partner with all the different pieces and move towards this seafood holistic level around supply chains. Um, so no one's left out. Actually, we bring everyone into that tent and work with them as partners, but we try to present this united seafood assured front of good seafood that is safe and healthy and nutritious, looks after people um, through that supply chain that works with MSC, that works with ASC, that works with BAP, that works on all these different levels to put assured seafood in front of people. So I, I would argue that that's absolutely what we're trying to do, but it ain't easy. I'm not going to say it is. <laughs> so uh, what's next steps, George? Yeah, I would say that it's the, uh, I think as Drew pointed out, it's the push-pull on the market side, the pull side. We we need to get with retailers and make sure we reinforce the message that it's wild and farmed, wild and farmed, and, and try to make sure we provide them with the talking points to deal with their retail counters and so forth. And then on the push side, we need to do a better job of reaching out to the fishing sector and the major production companies, not just the aquaculture side. So we need to work on the production side and, and build a better fraternity, a better collaboration, um, working together. That's frankly something we have not made any effort to do, but we certainly intend to begin. Yep. All right. So on that, I'm action steps. Uh, what do we do moving forward? And you know, let's uh, let's start to have that conversation. Has, has anybody thought about kind of what we can, what actions we can actually start taking to start using hashtag CC2XWK CP twice a week on all of your social channels? You're allowed to do that. I, I love Drew's idea. We can make cling stickers for all retailers. Let's let's design something and figure out a way to get it get it out at least for. October National Seafood Month. Let's let's shoot for one month, and all use the same hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, I would love to continue this conversation. I think this is worthy of having another roundtable sometime in the future. Uh, we're just wrapping up right around an hour, so this is actually perfect. But if anyone has any last minute thoughts, um, this is your chance. If you want to say something else before we uh, close off. To be honest, I want to thank you, Sean, for you know setting this up. Um, it's it's never easy, and it's not easy. We're all sitting in completely different places, and you know this totally wasn't rehearsed. We've we've just tried to play with the conversation and bring our thoughts together. And I think uh, you know a lot of the value and the action moving forward is to continue these dialogues, these conversations, uh, whether they're like this. And I hope we've had a lot of people um, uh, dialing in and. Um, you know, just let's get people more engaged in these conversations and let's not be afraid of each other um, and make it really competitive. Let's work out how to work together. I agree. And we have had a a, a good response. Great. Um, we've had 
over a hundred people tune in for the entire conversation. And there, it's been a very, very active uh, group chat for uh, of all the viewers. And if you are viewing this and you've asked some questions in that chat, I apologize that we didn't get to a question answer session for you, but uh, I challenge you to keep this conversation going. Once this uh, live stream is over, this video is going to exist on the GAA YouTube channel and in other places. Uh, so you can continue this conversation in the comments section and just keep keep the communication going. And hopefully we can have more roundtable sessions like this in the future because I think it is Brilliant. valuable. Uh, and I want to thank every one of you for joining me and everyone that's tuned in. Uh, again, George Chamberlain, GAA President. James Wright, GAA Editorial Manager. Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, Intrafish Media. Melanie Siggs, Director of Strategic Engagement for Global Seafood Assurances. Linda Cornish, founder and president of Seafood Nutrition Partnership, and Brian Perkins, regional director, America's Marine Stewardship Council. Thank you all so much for joining me, and we'll you, uh, talk to you all later. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Folks, that was our recorded roundtable discussion, which was live on January 31st. So I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. And if you have any other ideas of what can be the next step for this conversation, we hope to have more roundtable events in the future. But we'd love to hear from you guys about your thoughts on what you think we can do to help bridge this gap between farmed and wild seafood. Yeah. And this was the first roundtable, live stream roundtable discussion we've had. And it will definitely not be the last. We're definitely going to do more of these in the future. We're hoping to do at least two a year, maybe one a quarter if we can pull it off. But you know, getting everyone together at the same time sometimes can be tough. But like I said, this is not the last time we will do these. So keep an eye out on our social media. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook and Instagram. Follow GAA. We'll put all of the links for all of our social media in the show notes so you can stay on top of that and know when the next one's happening. Yeah, I think that this first go about in 2020, this roundtable was really successful and, you know, the best way that we can improve on them is to get feedback. So if you have a chance to listen to this episode or check it out online, we would love to hear your feedback, good and bad. So that's all from us, folks. We do want to hear from you. The three ways that you can get in touch with us is podcast at aquaculturealliance.org, at aquademiapod is our Twitter handle, or call, leave a voicemail, 1-603-384-3560. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Aquademia Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. Bye. Thank you.